Hello, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. Good morning, Weagle listeners. This is Victoria and Sophia here with the History Radio Hour. It's all history to me. This morning, we're joined by a special guest, and instead of having an in-person studio guest, we're actually uh, using the phone process here at Weagle to have a call-in with Miss Ruth Cook, currently residing in Birmingham, Alabama, where she is currently calling our studio from. Miss Ruth Bayumont Cook is originally from Bedford, Ohio. She earned her undergraduate degrees in German and English education from The Ohio State University. Later tonight, Miss Ruth Cook will be traveling to the Jewel Collins Smith Museum of Fine Art, known to Auburn students as The Jewel, to talk to the museum's guests about her book, Magic in Stone, The Silicaga Marble Story, which was published by New South Books in 2019. As it connects to The Jewel's memory mine, art exhibit by Sam Moyer. Silicaga is known as Alabama's Marble City for its abundance of stone, which has served as a catalyst for the region's economic and cultural growth. Cook's historical work covers the development of this natural resource and its impact on Silicaga, the 20.42 square mile Alabama city. Thank you so much for joining us, Ms. Cook. Glad to be here. Yeah, well, we're super excited to have you. So on your end, can you hear us uh, fine and everything? Yes, I can. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, cool. So to get our conversation started this morning, we wanted to start with a little background on your German slash English education major. And how did you first develop an interest in history from there? Well, actually, I think it was a variety of things. I had an exceptionally good high school history teacher who made the subject interesting, which was good. I was also fortunate both in high school and at university to have literature teachers who link the classics to their historical settings in interesting ways. So I think that's part of the original interest in history. Um, also, I have juxtaposed family history. My mother's family arrived in New England in the 1620s, later settled in northwest Pennsylvania, so they've been here forever. My father's mother, however, is descended from a Hessian soldier who fought for the British during the American Revolution and later also settled in Pennsylvania. My grandmother, my uh, paternal grandmother, kept and shared meticulous family records about those stories and passed them along. So there was that interest. Um, Also, I love to read fiction, both historical and contemporary. But my friends will tell you that when I read historical fiction, I'm sitting there with my iPad right next to me, so I'm can keep checking the story against real events to see how true it is. And I think that's really where my research habits might have started. Oh, yeah, that's that's an awesome story and totally makes sense <laughs> tying in that family history and passion for your past to uh, the modern context of reading fiction books and uh, trying to check how accurate they are. That's so cool. Right, right. Yeah. 
Well, very cool. Okay, so our next question is, do you think that your education in those history-adjacent topics helped you as you began your historical research? Um, yes, I think, I think it did. Um, I, I, when I started the research for each of the three books, um, I began by reading other works that dealt with the same subject and creating, I always start with a working chronology of events. So as I would read through other people's work, I'd write down a date, and I, and I also had an alphabetical listing of names. I got a feel for, you know, the overall history. Also, with all three of the books, um, it was personal interviews, either people's experience the events that I wanted to write about or with their descendants. That really made the stories come alive, and that was the most enjoyable part of the interviewing and then the writing. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. With uh, with Magic and Stone, um, the Silicaga book, I found a rich store of memories from Silicaga residents who either worked in the quarries or they grew up as people in out there called it at the side of the hole <laughs> in the company village of Gant's Quarry. Um, I also found all kinds of major and minor quarry-related events in local newspapers in Sylacauga that were very well preserved by the Comer Library. Also, um, photos and files in the Alabama State Archives. There were some wonderful things there. And in the archives of the Birmingham Public Library. Um, I think the main difference in doing the writing and the research for Magic and Stone uh, as a, compared to the other two books, was that I had far, far more material to start with than I than I did with the others. So um, that was a joy. Oh yeah, that's super interesting and neat how you've been able to combine that uh, experience with talking to the firsthand people that had that story as part of their life and then also those sources that are in text and everything. So definitely super neat and something that we've enjoyed talking to different historians this semester about their research process and the difference between those uh, stories, firsthand accounts versus the uh, text sources as well that Sophia and I are a little right. bit more used to using here in the classroom. <laughs> Well, and often at times, too, um, I'll, I'll be working on a project and somebody will say, oh, did you know such and such? And, um, for example, with Magic in Stone, um, some people said, oh, did I know that the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial were built of Alabama marble? Well, no, not exactly. <laughs> and so when people tell you things, um, you always have to go back with your research and, you know, kind of fact check, as we call it today. Uh, and see, you know, how close to accurate they are. And sometimes they're right on spot, and sometimes they're not. So you have to check. <laughs> ah, yes, yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's even increasingly more true here um, in the present day when there's so many different uh, narratives to be told that it's especially important to check the facts. That's true, very true. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for our next question, you kind of touched on this a little bit, I think, at the very beginning. But as an Ohio native, what drew you to the American Southeast and the state of Alabama specifically? <laughs> well, it really wasn't a conscious decision on my part. My husband got his degree in mechanical engineering at Ohio State, and the first job that he accepted was with Honeywell, a, um, a 
temperature controls engineering. And that is what brought us to Birmingham in 1970. And then, um, and of course, I had never been in the Southeast, so there were a lot of uh, adjustments to little things like um, uh, fire ants. I remember my three-year-old saying, Mama, the ants are biting me. And I said, ants don't bite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there were lots of, you know, little things like that. But um, so we came here in 1970. And um, beginning in the 1980s, I started re- uh, honing my research skills. I was writing feature articles and also an Art Month column for Birmingham Magazine. And then I also wrote uh, for Alabama Heritage, Business Alabama, and some of the other uh, local and regional publications. And um, along with that, um, coming to the Southeast, I quite early on found myself drawn into what I would describe as a very rich and diverse writing and journalism community in Alabama. There are wonderful writers here. And everybody uh, shares and welcomes other writers, which is a good thing. Um, I served on the planning, uh, I'm sorry, the planning committee for the Red Today Conference that was from Southern for a while, and also on the board of directors of Alabama Red Forum a number of years. So, um, you know, I got drawn into literary community in Alabama and, and silver and love. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so cool that there's such a great community of writers here in the region and that you've been able to get connected with them for sure. What inspired you to write Magic and Stone, the Silicaga Marvel story? Um, actually, how do I start this? Um, they, uh, it goes back to 2008. Alabama State Council on the a kind of a sister relation, a sister city relationship between the entire state of Alabama and the Italian city of Pietrasana. Pietrasana is right next to the Carrera Marble Quarry. I like to say where Michelangelo went missing when he committed for most of his marbles. So, anyway, they created this sister relationship, and in 2008, they sent representatives from the art communities of Alabama to share their work in Pietra Santa. And of course, that included the marble and sculpture from Silicaga. And then the following year, um, the uh, Italian uh, artistic community in Pietra Santa sent um, an opera company, a ballet company, a master sculptor, and other artists to visit various cities in Alabama. But Silicaga, particularly after that first year, realized that there was a very close connection between Pietra Santa and Silicaga itself because of the marble. And so they decided in 2009, when the Italian artists came to Alabama, to have a marble festival and to celebrate their their wonderful resource. And in doing that, they wanted to have a history that started as just a little brochure. They wanted a brochure that would outline the history of the marble uh, quarry development. So that's where that's where the interest came from. They asked me if I would kind of dig into the history, and of course, um, I said absolutely. I love doing that. So that's how it started. Oh, 
Oh, that's awesome. That's really neat how it started out as a smaller project and that they were sister cities and then moved into that um, bigger, bigger book that ended up being the final product. That's correct. And that festival has now been held every single year since 2009. It's usually the first few days, first 10 days in April. And oh, wow. it's been wonderfully successful. That's so, awesome. um, you know, the book came out uh, in 2019. So that was 10 years later. But um, I was able to gather all kinds of information over that time period to add to the, uh, the quality of the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that sister city relationship existed before they knew that there was the similar marble, or was that the reasoning for the sister city? Um, I don't think it was directly the reason for the sister cities, um, because it was the state council wanting to share. For example, they translate. They had uh, To Kill a Mockingbird translated into Italian and took copies of that. They took G-Fen quilters and um, the artist Nall's work. Um, it, it was not just marble in that exchange. Wow. But when that 2008 exchange happened, that's when Silicaga, um, the, the leaders in Silicaga and the leaders in Pietra Santa realized that they had an even closer um, relationship because of the marble. So, wow, that's so that cool. And that has continued. Mm-hmm. It's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, what a what a neat coincidence that was able to definitely help out uh, Alabama for sure, and I bet that mutual connection in Italy was beneficial for them as well. Right, and still is. Yeah, yeah, that's really neat. Okay, so for our last question of our first segment here, uh, what was the inspiration for the title of your book, uh, Magic and Stone: The Silicaga Marble Story? Okay, well, the title the the basis for the title comes from the fact that they called their festival Magic of Marble. Ah. So they, you know, there was the concept. But um, uh, the concept really is that you're creating something magically beautiful from just a hunk of rock. Right, right. And I always think back to, um, there's a quote from Michelangelo uh, somewhere, I don't know where I read that, but anyway, he described one of his sculptures, which was an angel, a kneeling angel, and he said, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. And I think most sculptors would tell you that that's their image. They have this chunk of marble. When they come to the festival, their chunk of marble is donated to them. But what they see is what they can pull out of that marble. So magic of marble, um, magic in stone expresses that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very fitting title. Yeah, very fitting. So we're going to take our first two-minute ad break, but we'll see you right after the break. Okay. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me here live on Weagle 91.1. If you're just joining us, we're joined by Miss Ruth Cook uh, discussing her book, Magic and Stone, The Silagaga Marble Story, which documents 35 miles long, at least 400 feet deep, and more than a mile wide Silicaga Marble Belt. This valuable quarry yields crystalline white marble frequently compared to the Parian marble treasured by Greek sculptures and the Italian Carrera marble often chosen by Michelangelo. In fact, architects have prized Silicaga marble for years as a dimension stone for buildings like the United States Supreme Court. How did you first find out about the existence of such sought-after stone in Alabama? Well, there's an odd coincidence related to that, but I'll give you a little bit of 
background first. Um, I grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area, and the Cleveland Museum of Art has a magnificent, some several magnificent sculpture pieces in its collection. And as a child, I went to Saturday morning art classes at that museum. And uh, in doing so, I, I quickly realized that I was not going to be a creator of art. I was going to be an appreciator of <laughs> art. And it has stayed that way. Um, I also had a college roommate who was a fine arts member. And she and I went to the New York World Fair. I'm dating myself here. In 1961. <laughs> and uh, Michelangelo's Pieta which was on this there. It was a fantastic opportunity. But you couldn't just stand there forever and gaze at it. You had to ride this horizontal escalator in front of it. And I remember that the two of us got off and went back around and, and got on again at least six or seven times so we could really appreciate that. So I had, I had an interest in sculpture, but before 2009, I did not know anything about the quality of the Alabama market in Silicaga um, that had been knocked in on my radar. But on the exact same day, this is the odd coincidence, on the exact same day that I went down to Silicaga and talked to um, Dr. Ted Spears and Dr. Shirley Spears at the Comer Library Foundation about writing that initial uh, brochure, I sat down that evening to watch an old black and white movie on American Movie, American Movie Channel, with my husband. And there was a scene in this movie where a character named Dominique Francon, who was played by Patricia Neal, decided she wanted to meet the very handsome and rugged uh, man she saw down at her father. Her father owned a granite quarry. And she looked down from her bedroom and saw this very handsome man who turned out to be named Howard Rourke. And she decided she wanted to meet him. So she walked across her bedroom, picked up a poker, and smashed a corner of her marble fireplace. This is in the scene I'm watching on the television in her bedroom. Then she called a servant and said, you see that man down there in the quarry? And this was Howard Rourke, played by Gary Cooper. Go down there and get him. I want him to come up here and fix my fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm watching this scene, and in the box, Cooper drives across her bedroom, stoops down in front of the fireplace, and picks up a chunk of shattered marble. And I kid you not, I quote exactly what he said. This is Alabama marble. Very high quality. Very expensive. And I went, oh my God, that's the stuff I'm going to get about. Um, so it was just um, to be told that this was really, really good marble. So that's how it, that's how my interest began. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Such a unique uh, way to get to discover the marble. That's definitely not what I think either of us were expecting to hear that you no. had that combination of, uh, you know, resources right there where you were and then also getting that movie um, <laughs> justification yeah. too. Course. And, of course, that was The Fountainhead based on Anne Rand's book. So. Ah, yes. Yeah. Well, very cool. Okay. So uh, kind of similar to how you discovered the Silicaga marble or the value of Alabama marble, how did the people in Silicaga first discover this valuable resource? Okay. We have to go way back for that. Um, the earliest awareness that, that I found of uh, Silicaga marble 
goes back to Johnny Warriors from Ohio. Came to Alabama in and established a village uh, in the Coosa River Valley. They called it Chalaka Day. You can kind of see how Silicaga probably evolved out of that. But anyway, they used the marsh, which was cropping up in places of the ground, to create arrowheads. And you can still find a few of those sometimes in that area. But um, after, in the early 1800s, those Shawnee people who had their village there in the Coosa River Valley joined the Creek Confederacy. And if you know your Alabama history in the early 1800s, they were very much defeated by General Andrew Jackson and his troops in the Creek Wars of 1813 and 1814. The next person to actually recognized the quality of the marble was a 23-year-old military surgeon who served with Jackson, Andrew Jackson, when he came into Alabama. And he later, he uh, was living, I think, in Tennessee, but he was from Maryland. He later settled in Selma, Alabama. But as early as the 18, late, or early 1830s, he was buying up land in Talladega County so that he could quarry the marble. And by the end of the 1840s, he had actually moved to Talladega County. So that was the uh, original awareness. And before the Civil War, there were actually three main quarry developers. Uh, this is, would have been in the mid, early to mid-1830s in Talladega County. One was Dr. Edward Gant, for whom Gant's quarry is named, and he was the surgeon with Jackson's troops. There was also a man named George Hurd who came here from Scotland and was very impressed with the quality of the marble and brought, I think, four of his brothers over here to help him with his quarry. And then there was another man, I think I can quote his name exactly. His name was Joseph Madison Napoleon Bonaparte Nix. <laughs> but everybody called everybody called him out, obviously. <laughs> but um but interestingly enough, here in Auburn, um, the Pine Hill Cemetery, which is right off the side of the campus, now where I'm talking about? Ooh, I think so. Okay. Well, in that cemetery, there are two monuments, uh, memorial monuments. One done by Dr. Edward Gant from Gant Quarry, and one done by George Hurd from a quarry that's closer up to um, the town of Talladega. But they're side by side, right there in Pine Hill Cemetery. You can go see them if you want to wander around till you find them. <laughs> that's the original there. Wow. Well, that's really cool. So it was a combination of different uh, people, and I feel like lucky lucky circumstances that the right people with the knowledge found the stone and we were able to capitalize on it. Right, right. When you first decided to write your book, was it difficult to find the sources you needed to tell your story? Not really, and and that's another blessing about Alabama history. I think um, the <clears throat> the quality the quality of the marble um, in Silicon has been compared repeatedly down through the years to the Italian Carrera marble that I mentioned in the quarries that are right there by Pietra Santa, right. and also to what's called Parian marble, which was quarried mainly in the third, early 3rd and 4th centuries right on the Greek island of Paros. Um, 
the most well-known uh, sculpture from that is the Wing Victory or Nike, which was created from that marble. Mm. But we do know that Alabamians were aware of those comparisons as early as the 1860s because Julia Topwiler, who um, wrote, wrote her poem, Alabama, which later became the state song, and most people never even looked at the second verse, but uh, the second verse of that poem, which was written in 1868, says, where the marble white as that of Taros gleams, and she was referring to the marble in Sylacauga. So we know that those comparisons were made early on. Um, and of course, um, with, as with most other businesses when this, in the South, when the Civil War came along, um, after that, there was a long, long period before industrial and creative recovery really began to happen between you know the 1860s and the early 1900s. So it was really um, not until the early 1900s that Silicaga marble again became recognized and really sought after for architecture, for sculpture, later for industry. Um, just a couple of quick examples of that. Um, most of you have probably driven by Red Vulcan, the cast iron statue up on top of the hill there. Right. That was that was commissioned in 1904. Giuseppe Moretti, who was an Italian sculptor and was working in New York at the time, um, got the commission to create that uh, Vulcan statue, which is still one of the largest cast iron statues in the world. But while he was in Birmingham um, getting that prepared, it, the, the um, commercial club, the forerunner of the Chamber of Commerce in Birmingham, wanted that statue to be shipped to St. Louis for the Louisiana Purchase Exposition Expedition in 1905. And so uh, Moretti was here in Birmingham getting that ready to go when he came across several small sculptures done from a beautiful white marble. And he said, where did this marble come from? And um, he was taken down to Silicaga and was extremely impressed with it. He brought back a large chunk. Um, I think most people are aware of the Balkan statue, but most do not know that Moretti in 1905 created another sculpture in, that mar in the gas quarry marble called the Head of Christ. It's a beautiful piece. It was one he loved so much he carried it with him for the rest of his life. And it's still on display in the archives in, in the archives building in Montgomery. Um, so he was a great promoter of the marble. Um, he, he sculpted it. He owned quarries. He was not a particularly good businessman, but he invested in quarries and promoted the marble. Also, in 1908, as another example, there was a man named Gustav Bordlum who took a chunk of marble from Gantz Quarry and created a beautiful bust of Abraham Lincoln. And that bust is still on display in the Capitol building. It's not in that statue hall, but it's in inside the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Wow. And, of course, Gustav Bordlum, a few years later, 20-some years later, I think, one who created Mount Rushmore. So wow. those were early promotions of, of the marble nationally and internationally. Oh, that's really cool. 
And then, so those were used as then able to spread the word about the marble that existed in Alabama, and people saw those and were assumably right. like, wow, where where did you get that stone? And the rest is history. Right. And in beginning in 1905, when the village of Quarry was built, um, the Silicaga area really became... Um, economically successful with marble. There were um, there were two main companies, the Alabama Marble Company and Moretti Hera, um, which Giuseppe Moretti and an uh, investor from Pennsylvania had started. And they began creating, um, uh, taking marble orders for architecture all over the country at that point. Wow. Wow, that's really cool. Okay. So kind of tying back into your research process for our last question of this segment, how did you find that using those in-person uh, interviews with the quarry workers and other people involved in the marble uh, industry in Silicaga, how did that impact your final book? I think it, it had a huge impact because um, the history I like to read and the history I like to write is not just documentation. It, it's I, I try, and I think many historians try, to bring the stories alive. And um, I would say that um, the interviews are really what gave this book its heart and its soul. Um, the facts were there, but then there were all these, you know, interesting interviews. Um, I talked to people who remembered the sound of the quarry whistle when the day started, and then there'd be a whistle at noon for the 35-minute 30, lunch break and again in the afternoon. Um, there were people who talked about working in the finishing shop where they, you know, um, polished the marble and how they would come out at the end of the day just covered from head to toe with this marble dust and they'd use air hoses to blow it off of each other outside the building. <laughs> um, uh, children talked about riding on the front of the Zinke railroad engine that pulled the marble cars out to the main railroad. And when the cars were empty, the two engineers would let the children ride on the front, you know, back and forth a little bit. Um, there were all kinds of, of personal memories. Um, uh, one of uh, one memory that I, I love, the, the two women who ran the cafeteria at the school, the desk quarry had its own school. And um, these two cafeteria workers were just beloved by the students and the teachers. And one of them told me that a little boy came one day, and when it was lunchtime, all he had with him, some students brought their lunches and some um, paid for them. This little boy, all he had with him was a turnip green sandwich, because that's what his mother had. Wow. And she came to him and said, now, I want you to this little boy, she said, I want you to know we made too much food today, and so we have leftovers, and we want you to have some of it. And that was one of her many stories. Um, but it was those kinds of things that I think brought, uh, brought the factual parts of the book uh, to, uh, to life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nothing like the power of a, a first-person narrative to really bring that history to life. Right. Of course. We're about to go into our next ad break, but we'll see you after two minutes. Okay, great. Hello and welcome back to It's All History to Me, the History Radio Hour here on WEGL 91.1. All right. So this morning, Sophia and I are joined by Miss Ruth Cook, 
and her book, Magic in Stone, the Silicaga Marble Story, covers the wide-spanning history and impact of the discovery of high-quality marble within the small Alabama city of Silicaga. Throughout the last segment, we discussed the prime period of this marble's use as an artistic stone with quality to rival that of Europe's best marble. However, in the 1930s, as the book discusses, marble's uses in buildings was largely overtaken by the increasing popularity and more resilient uh, qualities of granite. At this point in Silicaga's history, the quarries had to pivot to cater to a different need, developing the ability to produce the fundamental ingredients uh, in manufactured products from toothpaste to foodstuffs and disposable diapers to paints, caulks, and sealants through this process of blasting and grinding marble into a fine powder. All right, so this pivoting point in the use of marble, what drove the shift away from marble and towards granite in the larger history of architecture and building? Okay, I always cringe when I get to this part of telling the story. The <laughs> idea of grinding up this beautiful marble just is unbelievable. Right. But there really was, there really was no choice in the 19, by the 1930s um, industrial pollution from factories and cars and those kinds of things was becoming a real problem. And it was discovered that marble, um, as it existed then and without the treatments we would have today, um, was did not uh, wear well in areas where there was pollution. So the owners, particularly of the Alabama Marble Company, kind of saw the handwriting on the wall that architectural use of the stones was not going to be their main focus going forward. And so they began to search for other opportunities. And as you mentioned, what they came up with was what's commonly called GCC, which is ground calcium carbonate. Mm. And um, people have often asked me when I, when I mentioned the, the men hosing the marble dust off of themselves at the end of the day, they said, well, isn't that dangerous for their, for their lungs? And the answer is no, because calcium carbonate is not harmful to the human body. Um, not only is it in toothpaste, as you mentioned, and several other products, it's actually, if you buy a loaf of bread and it says calcium fortified, most likely there's some marble dust from possibly silicaga in your bread wow. because that's where the calcium fortification comes from. Um, so what happened was beginning in the 1930s and accelerating on up into the 1960s and even going on today, the major industrial use of silicaga marble is the creation of GCC. And it's a huge business. Um, over the years, the, the original companies have merged into other companies and been bought by companies. And today you have two major industrial um, creators there. One is the Emirates Company, which is a French-based company. They have their largest GCC quarry is the Silicaga Quarry. Um, there's also a company called Amya which has quarries in Silicaga. And those two companies have basically um, inherited the history of the original Moretti Terra and Alabama Marble companies. Huh. Wow, that's super interesting. And cool to hear about how that, like, the modern companies have come in and that they're still in existence today in Silicaga. 
Yes, and the, and the beautiful thing today is since 2009 with the Marble Festival, you really have full circle. You started with sculpture and architecture, and then you had to move to the industrial. But today what you have is the two side-by-side side in Silicaga, and those companies and other companies in Silicaga are extremely supportive, including Bluebell Ice Cream and others, um, are extremely supportive of the festival. So you really have the best of two worlds today in Silicaga. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, because our next question is kind of asking how the people of Silicaga reacted to this change in the industry. And it's a Really exciting to hear that, like, in the modern period, that there's been a lot of uh, excitement about both halves of the whole. Right. And another um, significant change that happened because of this, um, in the beginning, Gantt Quarry had its own schools, it had its own churches, it had a post office, it had a nine-hole golf course, lighted tennis courts, bus service, post office, it had you know, all the amenities of a small town, but uh, even a baseball field. Oh, wow. But um, after, particularly after World War II, things shifted to where, you know, every, pretty much everybody had a car. Um, people didn't have to live right next to the hole in order to work there. And so gradually those the quarries began eating up more and more and more of the property, and people began to move away from the quarry. So there was that change um, that, that happened as a part of that, too. Um, the roads were better by that time and, and so on. So, um, But the local population um, pretty much took this in stride because the jobs were still there. And so they simply shifted their home life farther away from the quarry. Hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. Did the new approach to de developing Silicago Marvel prove more lucrative for the city? Um, yes, I think it, it definitely did. Um, as, as I mentioned, these large companies um, that came in provided a lot of tax revenue and other revenue, you know, because of businesses for the city. And they also made very definite um, contributions to the economy and also, as time went on, to the art appreciation of the city. Um, so you really, as I mentioned, you, hit, you have this balance now um, that is lucrative in both ways for the city. That's awesome. That's awesome. And de definitely exciting to hear that this industry has been able to help shape such a uh, cool part of American uh, like industry and a really neat part of the state. So that's really great. Yeah. Such an awesome story to get to uncover and learn more about for sure. So there is a, Oh yeah. You if, go if ahead. You have, if you have a second, yeah. there is a funny story that um, uh, Lila Ezekiel, there were several little kind of, there was a main company store and there were two other small stores in the area when Gap Quarry was an active village. And um, in the, late 19, well, I guess this would have been after World War II anyway, when the GCC, the ground calcium carbonate, was becoming an uh, effective industry. Lila Ezekiel and her husband had a store called Ezekiel right outside uh, Gans Quarry. And <clears throat> there was a salesman who would come and bring um, uh, supplies, you know, from the big city 
to stock that store. And one of the things that he brought to stock was Rolaids. Now, Rolaids, of course, are, you know, they help with your digestion, but they're primarily made up of GCC because that's what uh, settles your stomach. Wow. And so he would come in and bring these, you know, uh, um, cartons or these little bottles of Rolaids for them to put on the shelf. And Mm -hmm. one day he walked up to the counter and Lila was behind the counter, which was a huge, beautiful, polished slab of marble from Mm -hmm. the quarry. And he said, you know, he said, I, this this is just beautiful. He said, how do they do that? How do they take all that ground up powder and compress it back together <laughs> to make this beautiful marble? Right. <laughs> and she just looked at him. She, she said to me, she said, I just looked at him and shook my head and said, you have it backwards, young man. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Aw. That's funny. I love that story. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> That's going to... That story is going to take us out for our last ad break of the hour. So we'll see you in two minutes. Okay. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. If you're just joining us, this will unfortunate because we're almost done. And we're about to get into our last segment with our trivia questions. Miss Cook, are you ready? Yes. Okay. All right. Our first question is, where did the marble used to build the Washington Monument get quarried? Okay. You're asking me to answer the trivia question, right? Yes. Okay. Um, it actually came from a number of quarries, um, um, mostly Vermont, uh, New Hampshire, uh, which also have marble quarries for the monument. Um, the, um, the top stones of the monument are made from white marble from Texas and Maryland, um, I can tell you, um, people, you know, told me they thought it, the uh, Alabama mar- uh, marble was what monument was constructed of, and that's not true. But what is interesting, when they built that monument, um, they out- they sent out invitations to the states, to other countries, to groups like the Masonic Lodges and the Elks and all these different ones, and asked them to send stones of a certain size it could be set into the walls inside. If you go up that spiral staircase inside the Washington Monument, you see them. And Alabama has two stones in, set into that wall. Oh, wow. Both of them from Gans Quarry. One represents the state, and the other one represents a Masonic Lodge in Talladega County. Oh, that's really cool. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then I don't think we got to this question in one of the other segments, but then it is uh, maybe mentioned at the top of our hour here that the uh, Alabama marble did get used in the foundation of the Supreme Court building. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's very cool. So two two big monuments in D.C. connection to Alabama marble. Very, very neat. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, and so for our second trivia question, according to the 2020 U.S. Census, what is roughly the current population of the city of Sylacauga, Alabama? Well, it's not huge. Right, right. (laughs) The current population is estimated at approximately 12,000, well, they they have an exact number, 12,278 people. Right. Um, But you, you also have the, you know, surrounding parts of Talladega County in that area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that proves that it's, uh, you know, not not too big of a city that had this super valuable and uh, 
globally renowned resource, which is super neat. That's right. Right. Well, we always wrap up our radio hour with two questions that we ask our guests every week uh, to kind of connect back to the study of history and uh, sharing a little bit more about your passion for the subject. So our first question that we always ask is, why do you say that it's important that we study history? Um, and I can't quote exactly who said this, but I know that somebody somewhere said something I totally agree with, and that is that history, if we don't understand our history, we're destined to repeat the mistakes that we've made in the past. And I think that's, and that's not an exact quote, but <laughs> I think that concept is, is very important that yeah. we learn from, we learn from our past. And um, particularly in, in this time frame, um, I think it's important for people not to be afraid to dig back and find out the actual facts of history in their communities, in their states, in our country, and in the world. Um, we can better understand the issues that we're dealing with now if we can see how we did or didn't solve them in the past. I think that's very important. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, and for our last question, what advice do you have for current and future students of history? Um, that's a real, that's a hard question to answer, but I think my best advice would be to, when you're working with history, look for a balance between the factual stuff and the human interest stuff. You can, you can always make it more meaningful if you can add personal interviews or personal stories that reflect the facts and the points that you're trying to make. And I think that's something that um, uh, students of history can, um, can capitalize on if they, if they understand the importance of that as they're working through their studies. Yeah, of course. Yeah, really definitely. Great. So we want to end our show with some thank yous. Ms. Cook, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it well, and really appreciate your wisdom. Yes, thank you. Uh, we also thank you so much for having me. Of course. We also want to thank the Jewel Collins Smith Museum of Fine Art and Dr. Evans, who uh, was able to schedule a tour for the History Club last week, but also just giving us a wonderful opportunity to reach out to Ms. Cook. We also always want to thank the History Department and our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz, for their continued support, as well as the College of Liberal Arts. Your we could not do this without your support, as well as our researcher, Colby, who helps us write all these questions and do the background research. We couldn't do this without you. Of course, we want to thank Weagle, who lets us use their airtime and teaches us how to use this cool new technology Woo. that's going to <laughs> dramatically change the way that we do our podcast. Thank you, guys. And, of course, thank you, dear listener, for listening in. We couldn't do this without your support, and we greatly appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. Woo! You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time. <laughs>